Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today we are exploring one of the most shocking stories for a variety of reasons in naval history. It is the story of HMS Captain, one of the most innovative warships ever constructed. She was laid down in 1867, partly funded by the public. She had a very low freeboard and two enormous rotating armoured gun turrets situated very close to the waterline in between the upper and lower decks. Now, it's quite difficult to describe, so do make sure you go onto our website at snr.org.uk or find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, and you'll find some images there. The key thing to note is that although turret ships were not a new invention, they had only hitherto been used for coastal work. They were essentially floating iron rafts with an enormous rotating gun. But here, on HMS Captain, for the first time, you have that principle applied to a fully rigged ocean-going ship made of iron complete with steam engine. The design, Captain Cowper Phipps Coles, wanted a high-tech man-of-war which could go anywhere, including across the Atlantic, and sink anything. Now, she was designed with a low freeboard, but ended up with a lower freeboard than originally planned, and the vessel's high centre of gravity made her dangerously unstable. On the night of the 6th of September 1870, HMS Captain was part of a combined fleet of the Channel and Mediterranean squadrons of the Royal Navy on manoeuvres in a diplomatic show of force, when a fierce gale of hurricane strength knocked her down, before the crew could cut loose her sails. Nearly the entire crew of some 500 officers and men went down with the ship, including her celebrated designer, Captain Cowper Phipps Coles. Only 18 men survived. More English sailors were lost aboard HMS Captain than at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805 or at sea during the entire Crimean War. The loss of the captain was a national catastrophe, touching Queen Victoria personally and memorialised at St Paul's Cathedral and Westminster Abbey. The University of Wolverhampton have launched a project to find the wreck of HMS Captain and what a discovery that would be. To find out more, I spoke with naval historian and all-round enthusiast of all things relating to HMS Captain, Howard Fuller. And here 
He is. Howard, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning. Well, thanks for inviting me, Sam. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's take a look at the the history of this extraordinary vessel. Um, what was the state of the Royal Navy in the eighteen sixties? What were they? What were their priorities? What were they thinking about? Uh, the eighteen sixties, as as my monograph explored, is very turbulent time, as it turns out. It, it's a bit of a contradiction because, on the one hand, as a lot of historians have pointed out, this is a, a sort of age of equipoise for. The, the, you know, sort of Victorians. Uh, it's an era of profound peace, progress, prosperity. Britain has come out of the Crimean War in victory. There are no major wars going on with any other great powers. Sort of peace is on the horizon. It's the way people like it. Uh, and yet, at the same time, in the 1860s, the early 1860s in particular, there is increasingly a sense of turmoil uh, going on around Britain. On the continent, in Europe, abroad, uh, Russia, but particularly, say, the United States, the American Civil War breaks out in April 1861. And even, of course, at home. So there were, I won't call it chartist movements, but there was a sort of resurgence of the idea of reform. And this culminated, of course, in the passing of the Second Reform Act in 1867, after a series of public protests, call them riots, what have you. But it's, it's one of these wonderful sort of um, dichotomies that there was peace and satisfaction and law and order and all the rest of it. And yet there was also a lot of disquietude uh, bubbling through. So in terms of the Navy, uh, the Royal Navy in many respects in the mid-19th century never looked more powerful. It never looked uh, like it was enjoying a, a, a clear playing field against uh, would-be adversaries or, or serious rivals in many respects. And yet, on the other hand, as, as my own research has rather stumbled across, it just this is what the research was telling me. And I was quite shocked in many respects over the years. I keep coming back to this. This can't be real. This can't actually be happening. This can't be what the documents are actually saying, what the newspapers are saying or what people are saying in, in personal letter collections or what they're even saying in official like admiralty reports. But it is what they were saying, that they felt like they were losing control that they were constantly yeah. under threat, that, uh, you know, things might seem safe, but they weren't safe at all, that, you know, they were on the brink of some kind of disaster. Anything could go wrong at any instant. They could find themselves suddenly involved in a, in a, a crisis or even a war, and uh, that war may go badly, even even for the Navy. It may go badly for a particular ship. So, was that fear caused by changing technology, do you think? Very much by technology, very much by uh, socio-political or geopolitical uh, environment going on around. It's a whole swirl of factors that, that come together. And it is important to take these factors in mind because the history of HMS Captain, of course, has been largely dominated by the original verdict of the court-martial after the sinking of the captain, which was that the mid-Victorian public were to blame uh, for even yeah. having the captain built in the first place. That is to say, built over the wishes, over the uh, admiralty, but specifically the controller's department responsible for building, uh, maintaining ships, that the controller didn't want HMS captain. They didn't want coals interfering uh, with ship design, ironclad ship design, uh, building policies, and yet they felt pressured by, it could be 
that the senior politician within the Navy, the First Lord of the Admiralty, they felt pressured by uh, the rest of the cabinet, various cabinets as they came and went, both liberal and conservative. They felt pressured by uh, spokespeople in Parliament. They felt pressured by leading organs of the press, particularly the Times. But also they felt pressured by other people within the Navy. So uh, veteran admirals, captains, people who all were weighing in on what kinds of ships should be built and why, what kind of threats the Navy was facing or might be facing. And the fact that the public was blamed for building the ship is really, really extraordinary. Uh, it's, it's, mm. it's, I think a, a lot of people today perhaps will look at that and sort of shrug and go, wow, civilians can be real idiots. You know, what were they thinking? You know, that they had any conception of what was required to build a modern warship. Uh, how... Mm. You know, the, uh, the the sort of effrontery of it all, you know, and, and of course they got people killed. They got a lot of people killed. 500 people went down. It was a disaster for the Navy. It never should have happened. People shouldn't meddle in things that they don't understand. But that's not good enough, Sam. Um, you, you have to sort of say, well, maybe you can just condemn the entire mid-Victorian people <laughs> as ridiculous and, uh, you know, pushing where they shouldn't have pushed, you know, they shouldn't have opened Pandora's box. They shouldn't have committed this sin or what have you, whatever. Uh, but, but why, why, why did they do that? It was, surely that was sensational and exceptional for them as well, that they felt like they had to do this kind of thing, that they had to sort of ram uh, a shipbuilding policy down the throats of the Admiralty. You know, one of the most conservative time-honored institutions in, in at least Victorian society uh, at that point. What was going on? I think it's perhaps to do with the British feeling like they deserved a say in 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 the navy in the fate of their country, um, and uh, they felt empowered to do so as well. Um, before we go any further, and I, I think a key part of this is actually also to do with the extraordinary nature of the design, because it wasn't just new; it was kind of crazy new. It was it was totally out there. Could you just describe HMS Captain for us? Well, Sam, I, I think we have to be careful on the idea of, of crazy designs because uh, this period, of course, was full of crazy designs coming from all over directions. It is very much a sort of Jurassic Park frenzy of, of different evolutionary strands all you know, springing out in different directions for different reasons, crashing into one another, evolving rapidly, some designs turning out to be hopelessly uh, terrible, obsolete, all the rest of it. Technology had never been more important in ship design, it had never been wilder and more distinctive. But there are varying degrees of craziness, aren't there? So, I mean, the, the classic point of comparison, you could say, with HMS Captain, uh, wouldn't be something like the USS Monitor, on the one hand, which the captain was obviously trying to employ design characteristics of, low freeboard, turret, this kind of thing. But also even HMS Warrior on the other end of that spectrum, you know, sort of Huge top hamper, full spread of sail, uh, emphasis upon speed, uh, this sort of thing. Trying to combine those types of things. The real point of comparison for the captain was HMS Monarch. Uh, it was the public that had also pressured the Admiralty to build a fully rigged sail and turret warship. And the first one was not the captain, it was the Monarch. And yet the Monarch survived. The monarch uh, did quite well. The monarch was sent over to the United States and back again. The monarch had a high freeboard. So what we usually get to when we talk about why the captain turned out the way she did was because um, 
the design concept is not necessarily at fault. It's also the execution of it. The fact that Coles was already saying that the high freeboard was something that can be tweaked. And the more we tweak it, the more savings and weight that can be applied then towards guns and armor. Uh, and guns and armor are increasingly become the obsession of the mid-Victorians, that it's a numbers game. It's all about the numbers. And whoever has the thickest armor or the biggest guns that can penetrate the thickest armor is going to win an engagement. Uh, and whoever wins that engagement is going to have gobs of prestige or gobs of prestige taken away from them. Uh, so the captain's pushing that limit by reducing the freeboard on the monarch. And then, as we know, uh, the design, uh, it, it's, it's altered, that the construction is not supervised particularly well. Uh, everyone is experimenting as they go. No one knows what's going to happen. Uh, and then it turns out lower still. And then, as we know, it turns out to be dangerously unstable. Uh, but why was the construction not supervised properly? Well, that's a whole nother sort of um, can of worms. I mean, I, I won't quite call it a scandal, but yeah, it was a scandal. And uh, the, one of the first people to, to bring up the idea that the captain's fate might have been different had it been more properly supervised and who should have been responsible for that supervision was the first Lord of the Admiralty. It was Hugh Childers who wrote a uh, very controversial public minute and he publicized the minute uh, even before he ran it past his own controller and basically was suggesting that the controller and the constructor's department, say Edward Reed, the chief constructor, should have been a lot more hands-on with the construction of the captain and therefore because of their... Uh, the way they washed their hands of the building of that ship helped led to the, the ship's fate. But it's not quite so simple as that, as simply pointing the finger at, at Robinson or Reed or perhaps even Coles for that matter, because we also know that there were a lot of uh, twist of fate sort of uh, um, turn of events that happened in the months leading up to the captain's final cruise in early September 1870, including the idea of having the ship tested for stability. So the first one... The first people who said well, we should test this ship because it's experimental and we don't really know, we've never built anything quite like this ourselves, was Laird's. Uh, and they had asked for the, te the test to be conducted. But in a strange twist of fate, a series of events occurred, echoing perhaps very much the, the story of the, the tragedy of the Titanic. You know, that if only they had done this, if only he had not gone for a cup of tea when he went on watch, if only he had not <laughs> set the speed at this, if only they had welded the hull in a certain way, all these things sort of seemed to happen. And it did sort of play out in that way, strangely enough, with the captain, that the, the results of the tests, you know, the inclination, the, the results on stability, which were brand new, they'd never been quite been done like that before. If only they'd been communicated just a few days before, you know, if only they'd not been held up, if one guy had not been sick or something, or he said, well, I better not send that report in, I'll wait, you know, this kind of thing. Let me just stop you there. So the results of the test were not known when the ship went to, went, went to sea. Yeah, and had the results been, uh, I don't know, telegraphed to, to someone in Spain, perhaps, and communicated to the Admiral in charge, Vice Admiral Milne, in charge of these combined squadrons doing these maneuvers off the coast of Spain, who knows? They might have acted a lot more cautiously. I suppose some historians will, will say, well, look, even if they had been warned officially from people doing tests in Portsmouth that the ship had a you know, really low angle of stability, and if you push this uh, far more than, than other ships in the squadron, uh, you're running the risk of a disaster. There's a possibility that the captain of the ship, uh, Huber Goyne and, and Copper Coles, would have simply dismissed it. They would have said, no, the tests like that coming from the Admiralty are just another example of them uh, trying to uh, you know, obstruct us. And uh, 
the ship sails fine. It's already been tested. Who knows? They might have ignored it. But then again, they might not have ignored it. All it, all it would take would be someone from Milne to say, no, you're going to treat that ship absolutely differently right now. That's an order. And that would simply be the end of it. But uh, as one of the things I, I found out when I was reviewing my own research in writing that book, Sam, was that Robinson had already planned to basically cashier the captain as soon as it had come back from that cruise anyway. Uh, he had no intention of allowing Coles to become the new Edward Reed, uh, the chief constructor. Uh, whatever Childers uh, might have pushed for, uh, someone like Spencer Robinson was quite prepared to push back. Uh, and he had every intention of basically uh, demonstrating by facts, as he was very good at marshalling one way or another, that the captain was an inferior uh even sail and turret warship compared with something even directly like the monarch. But even then, as we also know, and it's been well pointed out by other historians at the same time, they also had a massless turret ship under construction that the plan for which had even been run by Coles, who said, actually, it's really good. You know, this sort of high freeboard or a breastwork monitor that's okay, something closer perhaps to the turret ship ideal. It's approaching perhaps the sort of American monitor ideal, but it's a little bit more seaworthy. It can carry more coal. It's got a greater range. It's got incredible armor uh, configuration, great guns on it. Uh, it's, its ability to be used as a cruiser is always in doubt. Uh, a lot of people disapprove of that. And of course, Coles was insisting upon the captain design, a sail and turret design, precisely because he wanted to have a cruiser. The captain in 1870 is supposed to take up where the warrior in 1860 had had started, you know, this epitome of imperial power, a, a cruiser that could be safely deployed in all quarters of the, of the globe, if need be, economically, fast, you know, making the most of British seamanship, you know, the art of sailing, which your own works are very well familiar with keeping that alive and going, you know, from 1860 now to 1870 and beyond, the captain is the ship that can do it. Maybe not necessarily the devastation. But again, Reed and Robinson had already sort of come to the conclusion that the captain wasn't going to go anywhere, despite Coles's uh, influence um, with the First Sea Lord, proponents and press and all the rest of it. Uh, I, I tend to believe myself that the captain was probably doomed career-wise, uh, even if it had come back from that cruise in the beginning of, uh, of September 1870. Tell us what we know about the storm in which she sank. Well, um, I have gone through all the ship's logs. I've gone through all kinds of other evidence trying to figure out what happened on that night. I mean, first of all, to try to determine, you know, minute by minute uh, where the captain might have been in relation to the other ships and where the other ships were from the time that you know, the sun went down to the time that the captain foundered, based on various reports and all the rest. And uh, one of the things that we've been looking at very closely is the state of the weather. And uh, one of the things that we that, that came obvious uh, to myself uh, was that it's the, the weather itself is quite controversial in the, in the captain's story, because on the one hand, uh, people dismiss it as saying, well, it was just a squall. <laughs> it was just a heavy rain. Some people say it was a gale, which could be all kinds of things. Some people will call it a storm. Some people call it even a hurricane. Uh, what we do know is that at some point, just as the captain, uh, right before the captain sank, the winds did reach hurricane strength. 
And I think what you're talking about is uh, what they call a confused sea. So it had a, a cross sea and all kinds of uh, very peculiar conditions going on that night as it was. And I think that, yes, the, the captain was sort of rolling over very heavily. The sea was doing that to the ship. But I think what finally uh, did the captain in was a combination of the sea uh, pushing the captain over to the brink and a freakish wind that suddenly ripped through the fleet uh, just after midnight and basically damaged every every ship in the squadron that night. Everyone lost uh, spars, masts, parts of their figureheads were wrenched off. Uh, it was a freakish wind that, that ripped through the fleet. And uh, that's what pushed the captain over finally. And uh, the, the fact that it was, um, it's, you know, it still had some sails going and they couldn't get the sails down in time. And then to be hit with that kind of wind on top of everything else, that was a pushing factor. I think it was a freak wind. I, I think it was something that was unbelievably, uh, because then it, it doesn't quite sit with the reports of the rest of the weather for that night. But it was, it had reached an escalation. A freakish wind developed a hurricane pitch. And then it died down again. I mean, the storm lasted for, you know, about two hours afterwards anyway. But uh, that was definitely something that was freakishly strong. And uh, I'm not saying that that excuses the captain's seaworthiness, because, of course, any ship that goes to sea has to contend with the idea that they could be caught in a typhoon, you know. Um, and ships, ships succumb to severe weather even in this day and age, all the time. I think there are a lot of people surprised even during the Second World War how many ships succumbed to typhoons, uh, you know, with all the, despite all the modern testing, steel hulls, and, and all the rest of it. Disasters still happen, and uh, mankind's worst enemy at sea is still Mother Nature. Did the sinking produce any changes in the future policy of the Admiralty about construction and design? Well, yeah. Uh, obviously, um, the idea of sort of independent naval pundits putting forth ideas that they felt should be seriously reviewed by the constructors department. Uh, that sort of practice, which had been developing in the 1860s, it had gone sort of hand in hand with the development, the establishment of the uh, Institute of Naval Architects at the time. That lost all credibility, of course. Uh, there, there's nothing quite so dramatic as someone like an independent African, even though he was a Royal Navy officer like Cowper Coles, uh, going down with his own ship, 500 men going down as well. Uh, th that pretty much ended it. But there was, um, occasionally you can tell by looking through volumes like Transactions of, of Institute of Naval Architects or even Rusi for that matter, people were still coming forward and saying, I think the army should be building this kind of gun or we should be developing these kinds of tactics or I think that we should be you know, building these types of ships, that, that kind of independent criticism and ideas were still going through. But in terms of their ability to convert that into a sort of, you know, political pressure that might affect the first lord and then uh, directives to a first sea lord and, and the controller's department or something like that, I think that that radically changed. As Stanley Sander, I think, was well to point out, Captain was the only privately designed battleship for the Royal Navy, <laughs> And uh, they tried it, and it, 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 it didn't work. It didn't work spectacularly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too. 
like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why, did, why do you think they did try it? Why do you think they changed things and just decided to give this bloke a chance? Well, that, that brings us back to what we were saying at the beginning in terms of uh, why was the public backing Coles, you know, why why were people in the press, other naval professionals? There were still people even within in within the Board of Admiralty themselves who, who felt that Coles was probably onto something and that he was in fact right. He was being sort of obstructed for personal reasons, you know, by by Robinson and Reed. It was more about Reed's ego or, or Robinson's obstinacy in terms of being a you know, sort of a a controller with too much power, you know, especially when he's made a third naval lord on top, uh, thanks to Charles's reforms. They felt that uh, someone like Robinson was, you know, probably too powerful his own good. So how how much credibility do you give what they would say in terms of their opposition to Coles's ideas? It's it's more about I think the idea that that people at the time were not quite so confident in uh, the Royal Navy's ability to project power in a, a sort of classic Palmerstonian way that they had uh, you know, grown up with in, in many respects in the heyday of Palmerstonian foreign policy, say, starting in the 1840s, but culminating with things like the involvement in the Crimean War and even during the American Civil War. I mean, Palmerston's um, actions during the Trent Affair, very much uh, classic naval gunboat diplomacy, and it worked Brilliantly, <laughs> they didn't even have to deploy the warrior. The Americans only had to have a sort of gist of a threat that the warrior was coming, and uh, and they would have no response. And uh, th- this kind of gunboat diplomacy, of course, is a, a great way of solving short-term problems. <laughs> but uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln learned a lesson in naval gunboat diplomacy from Lord Palmerston. But uh, it was also the way, of course, that gunboat diplomacy. Um, sparks reactions from people. So once you humiliate somebody, chances are uh, they will back down, but then they will immediately uh, take steps to make sure that that never happens to them again. And the uh, Lincoln administration during the American Civil War was no different. Uh, They laid down all kinds of specific types of warships and refortifying all their forts along their their seaboard and uh, taking steps to prepare for a war against uh, Britain, that would stretch over into Canada, possibly uh, the Caribbean. Uh, all these kinds of steps were taken. Uh, Congress spent a lot of money basically preparing for a war against Britain during the American Civil War uh, on top of everything else. And these types of uh, reactions, of course, made their way back to Britain. They gave uh, Palmerston uh, you know, pause for thought, Earl Russell as well. They had got themselves into a bit of trouble uh, not long afterwards uh, over... 
Prussia and Austria's involvement against Denmark with the such a uh, Holstein crisis. Again, they wanted things to be a certain way. They made some specific threats. And uh, when they found that the French weren't willing to back them up with an army or something and that the you know, the Bismarck perhaps was taking their threats and just shrugging them off. What are they going to do? You know, what are they going to do about it? And uh, it, it did lead to a sort of, I think, a, very much a sea change of uh, British foreign policy that was going from a sort of liberal interventionism, confident liberal interventionism, to something that was far more cautious. So that the Times, for example, was now beginning by about 1863, 1864 to champion a British foreign policy mantra of non-intervention. Uh, not quite isolation, but it's the beginning, you could say, of isolation by by non-intervention. Like, we shouldn't get involved. We need to keep our mouths shut because we're going to get involved in one war after another. And then what are we going to do about it? Uh, it was one thing to go against Russia when we could perhaps rely upon the French army to help us conduct operations. And our number one naval rival was now our ally. But can we rely upon France now in a crisis over Poland in 1863 or Denmark or the northern states during the American Civil War, all these other crises that were developing? And um, that, I think, led to a lot of uncertainty. And yeah, the technology, the ironclad revolution that was going on at the time, the, the big problem with the ironclad revolution, Sam, at this time, if you wanted to put your finger on anything, I would say it would be the turret. It's the turret that creates yeah. all the problems because um, the turret seems to be a way of mounting a, a, a gun that's far bigger and heavier and can throw a much more uh, damaging projectile than anything that could have been mounted on the broadside at the times. I think you get to about 68 pounders. It seemed to be about the limit. But, uh, you know, if you've got a, a gun mounted on the center line of the vessel and it's on a rotating turntable and you could perhaps even rotate a massive gun with steam power on top, uh, that was a game changer. And the fact that it could be also heavily protected with armor plating directly and you could concentrate the armor plating plating far more than you could in spreading farmer, you know, armor plating along a long broadside or something, or starting all these various design compromises, like boxing off the broadsides into a central battery, these types of things. The turret was still a problem because you could invent something like Reed did, which is to say uh, a central battery ironclad like Bellerophon and say, well, look, the warrior design isn't going to work. Uh, it's only going to take us so far. Four and a half inches of armor isn't going to cut it anymore. We run the risk of disaster if we intervene somewhere and get ourselves into a fight with someone who's got thicker armor or heavier guns. Bellerophon is the way to go. But even then, uh, six inches of central battery armor concentrated like that is still not going to be as strong, it seems, technically, as a turret. Coles could say, well, that's fine. But I've got an even heavier gun behind even thicker armor in the form of a turret. And you can swing that gun around and it's more maneuverable and uh, your ship will be more maneuverable. It'll be more cost effective. And this is a real gnawing point because, of course, as a lot of uh, historians have pointed out ever since, uh, as Robinson himself was pointing out uh, to the rest of the board saying, well, we can't just jam a turret onto a ship like that and then still call it a cruiser. Uh, there's loads of technical problems like where are you going to put all the masts and sails? If you're willing to get rid of masts and sails and have a monitor, then you've got a clear arc of fire, but your ship isn't going to go very far. And how's that going to serve our Navy? You know, this kind of thing. So it is a conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. And it was one solution to that. Well, tell us about the, the search for the captain. Let's bring this up to date. Okay. Well, um, I was working on a follow-up article uh, about two summers ago now, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to just sort of mentioned the wreck of the captain 
And uh, it suddenly occurred to me <laughs> that um, I can't recall anybody finding the wreck of the captain. So I started you know, doing searches and, and looking through the Mariner's Mirror, actually. I was going through quite a bit of those and saying, well, someone surely has, has, has been looking for it or found it. Uh, nope, as it turns out, no. And there were uh, websites out there like uh, wrecksite.eu, which is a very fantastic database of shipwrecks. Uh, and they even had a listing for uh, the location of the captain shipwreck. And I thought, oh, well, that means it's been discovered. And I contacted the people who ran the website. It was someone in, uh, in, in uh, I think he was Dutch. And I contacted him and he said, well, actually, no, it's a guess. And I thought, oh, all right. So I'd made a lot of inquiries, and it turned out that no one has actually found the wreck of the captain. So I sat there thinking, that's a ship that really should be found. <laughs> it's HMS Captain. You know, this is the biggest, in many respects, it's, it's the biggest ship disaster suffered by the Royal Navy in, throughout the entire 19th century. This is a devastating body blow uh, to the sort of mid-Victorian psyche uh, at the time. Devastating enough that it would get its own... Uh, plaque treatment in St. Paul's Cathedral and its own stained glass window in Westminster Abbey. What, what shipwreck does that? Um, and there it was. And, and yet at the same time, no one has really sort of undertaken the pursuit. And it's not like it's at the bottom of the Antarctic, like Shackleton's Endurance. It's not like it's uh, in the North Atlantic, two miles down like the Titanic. We know that it's off the coast of Spain. And there's a big debating point as to whether or not it was still even within sight of the Spanish coast when it founded. So it couldn't mm. be that far out. The only question then was the state of the ocean floor. And as, as I began exploring this and began consulting with marine archaeologists, because I am not a marine archaeologist. I'm a naval historian at best. And uh, th this was all sort of new for me. So it was more about um, going out and consulting with experts and shipwreck hunters and saying, well, if we wanted to find a captain and this is the evidence, I mean, how would we go about doing this? And what do you think? And I was getting a lot of really good advice from, from some knowledgeable, experienced people. And uh, one of the things that's a problem with looking for the wreck of the captain is that the, the Spanish continental shelf goes out about 20 miles and then it drops off a cliff. Uh, and then it drops like an extra thousand meters. And uh, a lot of our guesswork, based on the evidence that we that we gathered from research, was suggesting that the captain probably sank right on that edge. And if it, if it sank mm. on that edge and it went off that cliff, then it's a mile down. <laughs> it's a mile down and it's it may even be like on that cliff. It may be in a crevasse. You know, it could be uh, very broken on even ground. The ship could even be broken to pieces, even though it, it didn't suffer any explosions or battle damage. It capsized and sank. It should be intact. It could be broken up from that kind of impact on that kind of terrain. So we were, um, at that point, getting estimates from UK-based marine surveyors to at least go out there and use a sort of first pass of sonar technology, which would be multi-beam echo sounders. Because a multi-beam will send out a certain kind of beam, which is, well, let's just say it's a, it's a wide beam. Uh, it picks up a certain amount of detail very quickly. Uh, that's the sort of first layer of searching that you would do. And then if you start identifying likely targets, they seem to be ships, then yes, you go back with things that are more specific, you know, a side scan sonar, and you could do detailed searches. And then when you, you zero in on what you think is actually what could be very much um, the ship you're looking for, then yes, you deploy an ROV and a camera. Okay, fine. So they've done all this legwork, uh, for example, when they, they found Shackleton's endurance uh, last spring. You know, I mean, those, those steps have all been undertaken. 
So we were getting estimates on this, and um, we knew that uh, if we were going to try to find a, a shipwreck like the captain, even if it was just off the coast of Spain, that we would need funding. You need sponsors. You need patrons. Uh, it's expensive business because um, it's using state-of-the-art technology, and you were basically you know, mapping out portions of the Earth's surface or subsurface, if you will, the bottom of the ocean that have never been mapped before. Uh that there are some interesting sort of factoids from sites like National Geographic that suggest that we know more about the surface of Mars than we do about uh, the bottom of our own oceans. It's true. I mean, you could send a rover to Mars and have that thing go around as long as the battery will last or, you know, solar power panels will last. But in terms of sending a rover on the bottom of the oceans, well, that's a bit more difficult. And it's only now, I think, that NOAA, for example, in the States is trying to systematically map the ocean floor. But my gosh, the cost and the time and everything else required, it's only arguably within the past 20 or 30 years, it seems, that we even have technology to do this kind of thing realistically, using satellites as well and all, all this other stuff. But um, so I've started giving a series of talks, start raising public awareness about the captains, because again, as we often say, the captain is the most famous shipwreck you've never heard of. Uh, and there's a whole uh, discussion about that as well. And... Um, I was contacted by uh, a Spanish documentary uh, company and they said, uh, we, we've been looking for the wreck of HMS Captain. And I said, well, actually, we started looking for the wreck of the Captain as well. Why don't we combine our efforts? Uh, and their methodology was totally different from the one that we had done. We, we were taking a sort of conventional uh, methodology, which is to go through uh, archives and gather all the available historical evidence, witnesses, testimonies, whatever, and start plotting it out, you know. Uh, they had decided to um, just simply interview uh, local Galician fishermen who have been literally trawling uh, the waters, say, 20 miles out from the uh, off Cape Finisterre for generations. And they're literally trawling their nets uh, on the ocean floor. And they encounter all manner of shipwrecks because, of course, this area, their Costa La Morta, is, um, you know, equivalent to, say, uh, off Cape Hatteras, the graveyard of the Atlantic in the United States, or off of the Scilly Isles of Cornwall. You know, it's just noted for shipwrecks, bad weather, uh, coastline shipwrecks. And um, the captain is their most famous shipwreck, actually. It's their biggest uh, loss of life. It's their biggest sort of wreck. It's never been found. Uh, what they did know was that it's not in shallow enough water where uh, divers could ever get to it. So Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to treat the captain in the same way that divers could, say, access the wreck of HMS Gloucester, right? Or the Mary Rose, for that matter. It's just for, you know, far enough out where it's at least 500 feet down. And unless you're very skilled divers and you've got loads of decompression time and all the rest, it's very, very hazardous to try to dive at that depth. You're not going to do it. Uh, fine. So no one has found it. Uh, then again, it could be intact. You could at least hopefully prevent scavengers <laughs> later on if you do find it, this kind of thing. So they had been interviewing all these fishermen, and the fishermen had their own sort of private map, which they had put together. And they had started specifically labeling some of these mystery wrecks, because they don't know what the wrecks are either. They're not deploying sonar. And one of them was they simply called El Capitan, and they were convinced it was the captain. And I had long discussions with them uh, over a period, and they were saying things like, well, Howard, um, they know on some of these wrecks what kind of fish that they can net on one end of the wreck as opposed to different kinds of fish that they can net on the other end of the wreck. And I said, you're kidding me. And they said, no, actually, they've worked it out that, that minutely. And I said, okay, 
let's see the map. <laughs> And, uh, they were like, well, they won't even let us see the map. They're very guard. They're very <laughs> guarded about this map because, um, you know, th- this is their territory. You know, d- despite it being in international waters or say in, in Spain's easy zone, you know, it's fine. But the, the fishermen, I suppose you could say, by ancient right, feel that these are their waters, and and the wrecks are something that they deal with on a daily basis. It's part of their lives. So they were very cautious about sort of throwing this away. Uh, and they did manage to convince this uh, documentary crew uh, access to the map. And uh, I said, well, look, we can combine our resources with those resources. And I think it makes perfect sense that we hit their targets first. For one thing, they're in shallower water and they're still on that continental shelf. So we should probably hit those first uh, with a multi-beam and see what we're talking about here. And then if they don't pan out, if it's not the captain, then we're further out to sea, even by a couple of miles, a couple of nautical miles, and we're probably off that cliff, and it's going to be a much harder find. And uh, and that's then me going to professional shipwreck hunters at that point. So And we, we have um, you know some lined up already. But the first thing was to go out there and look at that. And that's what we did. So um, the University of Wolverhampton, at first they were a bit astonished by the idea that we were looking for a shipwreck because we don't typically look for shipwrecks. Most universities don't tend to get into shipwrecking uh, hunting business. Uh, and if they do, very naturally, they might, I don't know, be close to the sea. <laughs> Wolverhampton's about as landlocked as it gets. We have some lovely canals. Uh, <laughs> they're usually filled with shopping trolleys, this kind of thing. But, um, but, but... Uh, we're strong in war studies. We're strong in military history. We have a very vibrant uh, naval history offering, actually. And uh, yep. I'd just written a book about the captain. So um, they were willing to get behind the project. We had some uh, ref money from the last, uh, you know, the last ref uh, from our Center for Historical Research. So uh, they put some money forward, and uh, we we basically co-sponsored the first expedition, which we did go out on on the end of August of this last year. And it was a quick one-off expedition. We went out from Porto Novo in Spain. I flew down there. Uh, there was a discussion that, that Sherard might come as well, but we said, well, wait. <laughs> Where do we do the multi-beam? When we think we know ex- absolutely if this is the captain, we're ready to deploy an ROV, fly down and you know you can go see your great-grandfather's ship. You know, But not now. I'll go down there and, and we'll, we'll see what we got. And uh, so we went down there. And uh, we followed their map, and we hit four shipwrecks in four hours. They've never been documented. We don't even know what they are. But it was obvious on the on the scans that were coming up, and it was almost a straight line. So the, the mapping was direct, and uh, that they were either too small, so they were like fishing trawlers. Uh, and we were kind of saying, all right, this isn't anywhere near the size of the captain. And I was sitting at the stern of the vessel at that point, and I was kind of looking out the sea and going, well, that's a bust. And one of the film crew came up to me. She was really excited. And she said, we've, we've hit a ship that's over 90 meters. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. So we all rushed up and we, you know, we huddled around the monitors and the scans were coming in. And uh, we started circling around this. And as the scans were coming in, we were all staring at it. And the image was clearly of a vessel that had settled on its, you know, on, it, on its uh, keel. So it wasn't upside down. Which is possible, even if the and it was only about five hundred feet. So, if the captain had capsized, it's possible that the weight of the engines, boilers, all the rest might have slowly turned the ship over just in time. By the time it hit the bottom of the ocean, it's very close. I, I'm still kind of dubious of this, but there was a ship that seemed to be upright. And when he looked at the image, it was—I uh, guess you could call it a gestalt—but it was clearly what seemed to be 
a poop and a foxel with a with a low center in the center and there was a debris field in the middle and it was looking very much like the captain so and the thing that the multi-beam can do for you uh, even though it's not as precise as a side scan sonar is it can give you measurements so we were very keen on getting the measurements of what seemed to be the end of the stern to the tip of the foxhole and uh, also the beam of the ship, the beam of this wreck. And it was within about a meter of HMS mm-hmm. Captain. So it was so so bang on, so dead close. And it was also metallic. Uh, there seemed to be something floating around it. And unfortunately, the people who were doing the survey, Rove C and Hydrometech, these two local companies based in Galicia, who, who professionally do this work all the time, uh, they said that's probably netting. So there's a possibility there could be a net around this wreck, uh, several nets even, but at least there might be something floating over the wreck. That's That could be a problem later if we try to deploy an ROV. But never mind. The rest of the scan seemed to be dead on. It was a metallic ship. Uh, the general configuration seemed very close to the captain. And then we were also saying, well, what other ship could this be? Uh, the only other ship that came close was a German freighter about four or five miles away called the Schwanick. Uh, but that was the third ship that we hit. The, those dimensions seemed to match the Schwannick almost bang on. So we didn't think that that was it. We thought that the third wreck we hit was the Schwannick, and that this wreck was something different. It was also bigger than the Schwannick. Bigger enough, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, but, you know, we had a debate. It was very, it was very interesting, I have to say. And I, I, I was looking at this, and I, I went up top, and I said, I said, here's the problem. I said, look, you can still see the coast. I said, we have to take into account the survivors' accounts and all the rest of it that they were rowing through the night before they said they could see the lighthouse, before they could see the cliffs. And, you know, my Spanish colleagues were saying, well, they obviously didn't see the cliffs until daylight, right? I said, yes. I said, well, they said, well, how do we know that they weren't just rowing about in circles and waiting for daylight? And they were actually within sight of the coast until the light came up. And I said, that's true. <laughs> I said, I don't. So we were going over the accounts again very carefully. And it's like, yes, the boat turned around a couple times, you know, a couple times it almost foundered, you know, whatever. It's possible that it's this close to the coast. It's literally within about three nautical miles of the of, of the sort of box that we, a search box that we had established for ourselves anyway. So we have to check it out. And again, the, the one thing that uh, professional shipwreck hunters will tell you, Sam, is that um, uh, dead reckonings, and, of course, the way that they calculated speed, you know, uh, here's how many knots we're going. Let's throw that rope over and pull that rope back in one knot at a time. Yes, we're going five knots. You know, it's so imprecise compared with GPS and other stuff that we're spoiled with so quickly today that um, when you're trying to calculate how fast ships were going, what direction they were going in, how reliable even these you know records are in Admiralty. Well, it's an Admiralty record. You know, it's these people were professional sailors. You know, they had nautical instruments. They were trained at them. They were old, experienced navigators. Surely they couldn't be off. Yes, they could. Uh, they could be off quite a bit, actually. Uh, they did the best that they could with what they had. Uh, but in terms of um, in terms of how reliable that is for us today. No, I mean, and the when they found Shackleton's endurance, that was a, a you could say a case in point that you know even in the beginning of the twentieth century, you know the dead reckonings and the calculation of where they left the ship when they when they when they t- took off on their trek uh, was radically different from where they actually found it. And part of that, yes, was the fact that the ship drifted, the ice flows drifted, and all the rest of it. But another part of that was the fact that just they could only be as precise as they could when they took the measurements that they did. 
Well, it's very exciting, and I, I do wish you all the best. It's a fascinating project. I, I actually had never heard of HMS Captain, so I'm delighted to now know about the Captain, and I think we should spread the word as much as possible. But, Howard, thank you very much indeed for talking to me today. My pleasure, Sam. Uh, if you get me started, I'll, I'll go forever. The only thing I'll add here is that we do have a um, public charity set up by the university to take donations to help us fund to go back and see what that mystery ship is, and it's findthecaptain.co.uk. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much, and I'd encourage everyone to go and look at that. That's findthecaptain.co.uk. Thank you all so much for listening. So to find out more, please do head to findthecaptain.co.uk, where you will find a public charity set up by the University of Wolverhampton to accept donations for their fantastic project. That's it for now. There's more great stuff coming your way soon. And of course, loads of episodes to suit any maritime taste in our back catalogue, from pirates to mermaids, battles, fishing, exploration, discovery, you name it. And of course, please check out our brilliant YouTube YouTube channel which has got some really magnificent videos which will change the way that you think about the maritime past. Uh, the podcast is funded by both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. They're both fantastic, please check them both out. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk Thanks so much for listening guys. Cheerio! Thank you.